You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello to you all. Welcome back. Wonderful to see you. I do apologize for this episode being a little later than usual. Notable things that took place this week. A brief holiday in the sunny Cotswolds with my charming yet ear-shatteringly loud family. Work begins on the next Secret History of Hollywood episode. The Facebook page breaks 1,800 likes. After almost two years of having my ears crushed by a certain Dr. Dre-created headphones brand, my good lady wife sees fit to buy me a new pair that sit around the ear like a siege. Wow, I am really running out of similes. And about 50 emails arrive from you guys who simply can't believe that My Girl's Pussy is an actual song. There's one that I like to best, and every evening we get this. I talk it every chance I get. As if I would spend my time writing a song about a cat and or an area of female anatomy. No, it is an actual song. It's by Harry Roy and his orchestra, and it's from 1931. And can I just say that if you think that song is rude, then for the love of Pete, do not go looking for Shave 'em Dry by Lucille Bogan from 1935, or for Pin in Your Cushion by Bo Carter from 1931. Hey, I said don't go looking for them. Filthy little monkeys. In the afternoon, when things slow down, when you're wondering what to do... Sounds inviting. Let's go! <laughs> okay, where? Go bowling! Huh. supposed to be bowling music or something. Bowling! Nothing brings people together or makes friends so fast as bowling, so call a friend. Bowl Brunswick tomorrow. Okay. I could always use a few more friends. Let's just pick someone at random from the old phone book and try. Hello? Hi. Is this, uh, let me see. Is this Helga Wanklin? Yes. Helga 
Gertie Wanklin. Yes? That's a very beautiful name. Can I, uh, can I call you Helga? I don't see why not. Can I call you Helly? I don't see why not. How about Smelly Helly? Are you trying to make fun of me? Just in case you don't happen to know it, I'm a hopeless invalid. Sorry, sorry, I, I just wanted to talk to you for a moment. What about? Well, how do you feel about bowling? Helga. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. But this is one of the queerest things I've ever heard. Yeah, sorry, I sort of jumped right on in there with the bowling. Well, it certainly was rather odd, to say the least. Yeah, yes, yes, I know. So apparently, if we go bowling together, we'll strike up a honey of a friendship. What are you talking about? Why are you calling me like this? Helga, hel- do you want to go bowling? This isn't going the way it's supposed to be going, honestly. Uh, really, I mean... If you were to take a transcript of this call and read it back to me... Read it back to you? Are you insane? Uh, Helga, listen. There's like a bowling song and everything. Just wait and listen to this. I stroke it every chance I get. It's my girl's pussy. This is one of the queerest things I've ever heard. Oh, my God. Sorry. Hang on, Mrs. Wanklin. I meant to play this one. This is the bowling song of Ultimate Friendship. So... Basically... Now, look here, my good woman. You probably don't understand. No, no, no. Listen, listen, woman, nothing brings people together or makes friends so fast as bowling. All right, don't listen. Who cares? Hello? Yeah, great work, bowling. My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I assure you, I thank you. couple of thank yous this week. Firstly, to the enchanting trio of Lisa M. Ellis, Helen Gauvier, and perennial friend to this show, Miss Noya Chong-Wa, who all very kindly made donations. Thank you so much, you incredibly beautiful people. One, two, three Canterbury's fly through the air to you on gilded wings. Canterbury, Canterbury, Canterbury. A very sizable Canterbury to all my cohorts on the Flophouse Facebook page who always seem to be promoting the secret history of Hollywood somewhere. Thank you, everyone. Your constant support is very much appreciated. And I absolutely love being a flopper alongside you all. Seriously, one of the greatest groups ever on Facebook. Such a wonderful collection of oddballs and gentlefolk. To the Welk at Metafilter, thank you for the love. Space Canterbury to you. Likewise to Steve at Bear Alley Blogspot, thank you so much for sending so many people over to the show and your artwork is stunning. You thoroughly deserve this. And finally, to everyone I've been chatting to at the afterword, thank you so much for the kind compliments. Let's do the robot. She can kill with a smile, she can wound with her eyes. So here's the thing. As you are all aware, this week is Halloween and every podcast under the sun is racing to get its Halloween special out to you. And up until a few days ago, this show was too. But as you are all no doubt aware, on the 24th of October, yet another veteran of the golden age of cinema took their place in the heavenly lineup. She can ask for the truth, but she'll never believe. 
I'm talking, of course, about that most indomitable of screen heroines, an actress every bit as fiery in real life as the color of her hair. Ireland's finest, Maureen O'Hara. Oh, she takes care of herself. She can wait if she wants. She's ahead of her time. Well, I think it would be remiss of me to pass up the chance to celebrate a member of the Golden Age who, until just a few days ago, was still with us. And even though Halloween is upon us, I can tell you about those films next week. I don't think you're going to be short of Halloween-themed podcasts. Just cast out your net and drag an armful in. This week, I think, should belong to the Queen of Technicolor herself, the flame-haired beauty from Dublin County. Miss Maureen O'Hara. Now, I'm not going to tell you the story of her life. Perhaps she'll appear in a secret history episode before long. But I would like to throw a light on three of her film performances that I consider to be rather special. She began her film career under the guidance of Charles Lawton after a disastrous beginning where she was dressed in a gold lame dress and slathered in heavy makeup. She made a screen test which was quickly shoved aside and forgotten, but it somehow fell into the hands of Charles Lawton, who, despite the heavy makeup and ridiculous costume, was enchanted by her large, haunting eyes. Within a week, he'd signed her to a seven-year contract, and between 1938 and 1939, he put her in two films, My Irish Molly and, of course, Jamaica Inn, which was being directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Later, in 1939, though, Lawton was signed by RKO to play Quasimodo in their lavish and, in many people's opinions, definitive screen version of Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame and he insisted on her as his Esmeralda. Directed by the masterful William Dieterle, this tells the time-honoured tale of Quasimodo, the deformed bell-ringer of the Notre Dame Cathedral, who falls in love with the gypsy dancer Esmeralda and protects her when she takes sanctuary in the cathedral itself. I never realised till now how... Ugly I am. And because you're so beautiful. I'm not a man. I'm not a beast. <laughs> I'm, I'm about as shapeless as the man in the moon. <laughs> But Quasimodo's guardian, Frollo, the chief justice of Paris, has fallen in love with her too, despite proclaiming himself to be a pious man who longs to rid Paris of these sinful gypsies. I know she is the trap that Satan has set for me. You are the servant of God. You must help me. Then she must die. Who must die? This gypsy girl who has made me a murderer. But she's not guilty. Yes, she is. She has bewitched me, therefore she must die. Die for your crime? That's the devil's logic. You can't believe that. I do. The sorceress once bewitched Bruno di Fiorenzi. 
he had her burnt and was saved. This girl's death shall be my redemption. You're mad. You can't commit another crime. Your conscience won't let you. That is no crime I would not commit to free myself of her. RKO really went all in on this. Their first masterstroke was hiring William Dieterle to direct the film, a man who was an avowed expert at blending drama with horror elements. He was the genius director of The Devil and Daniel Webster, a film I sang the praises of a few shows ago. And his brilliance with shadow and sound is again on show here. As well as a cast of thousands, just witness the staggering opening scene where a city's worth of people celebrate in the square. You have an incredible cast including Sir Cedric Hardwick, Edmund O'Brien, Thomas Mitchell, Alan Marshall, Harry Davenport, George Zuko, Fritz Lieber, Mina Gombel. The list goes on, crowned, of course, by Maureen O'Hara at her most staggeringly beautiful as the free-spirited wildflower, Esmeralda, who illuminates every scene she's in. And a quite simply incredible performance by Charles Lawton as Quasimodo, who turns in a performance for the ages as the childlike, misshapen outcast with an honourable heart. He is breathtakingly good in this. He absolutely inhabits the role. You never for one moment suppose that this is an actor in makeup. From the moment he appears, you are watching Quasimodo being brought to wretched life by a towering talent without a shred of vanity on display. The fact that he wasn't nominated for an Academy Award goes to prove how Oscar gets it so wrong sometimes. Anyway, a completely wonderful film, as well as an epic spectacle, topped off by some truly mesmerizing lead performances. Next up, I'm going to unashamedly recommend a fantastic weepy. I do love me a weepy, and especially a weepy as expertly constructed as Sentimental Journey from 1946. Maureen O'Hara stars here as Julie Weatherly, a famous actress married to a Broadway producer, Bill Weatherly. The two are blissfully in love, but overshadowing their marriage is the fact that they cannot have children. Well, while walking on the beach one day, Julie meets a young orphan girl named Hitty, and the two instantly fall for each other. Are those pearls of great price? I believe so. Sir Lancelot gave them to me. Only everybody calls him Bill nowadays. Bill? Oh, yes. He's Sir Lancelot and Robin Hood and Bill, all rolled up in one. Is he a giant? Oh. <laughs> he doesn't quite reach to the sky, Hitty, but he's pretty big. Uh, will you children be down here on the beach tomorrow? We're going back home tomorrow. Oh, I see. It isn't my real home, of course. Some gypsies stole me when I was a baby and took me there. Miss McMasters is holding me captive until I can raise the ransom. Oh. Of course, some prince might come and rescue me and take me to the castle of my ancestors. Oh, I shouldn't be at all surprised. It isn't long before Julie and Bill have adopted Hitty, and the three of them begin a new life together as a family. All is bliss in the Weatherly household, but slowly cracks begin to show. Gonna take a sentimental journey. Bill, who's been used to having Julie to himself, 
begins to grow increasingly jealous of his wife's affection for their new daughter, which tears their household apart. Bill, would you mind very much if I didn't go to the party? What do you mean? Well, I, I thought I'd stay with Hitty. You go on and tell but Ruthie. Jim says she's all right. Yes, I know, but she still has a little temperature and Miss Benson's out. There's nothing for you to do here. Martha will take care of her if she needs anything. No, Bill, please. You understand. Sure I do. I like the kid, too. But we don't have to change our whole lives on her account, do we? Nothing to worry about. She's the most self-sufficient child I ever saw in my life. Come on, let's go. I'm, I'm sorry, Bill. I just can't leave her alone tonight. Okay. Bill! When she's finally forced to choose between them both, the agony breaks Julie's already fragile heart, and she's taken from them both, leaving a bereft Hitty and a bitter Bill to try and salvage some kind of relationship from their suddenly empty lives. What follows is the fairy tale of a small girl trying to lift a man from his darkest hour because of a promise she made, and it will absolutely break your heart in so many wonderful ways. The sight of this little fighter battling down her own tears and using everything she can think of to fight away this man's grief will at times destroy you and uplift you. Yes, it's overly sentimental, and yes, it was designed from the ground up to make you weep like a baby, but oh boy, how sweet those tears are when they fall. Connie Marshall, who plays Hitty, is an absolute knockout in this film. She also played Cary Grant's daughter in Mr. Blanding's Built His Dream House, and she is superb in this. A genuinely class act. Likewise, John Payne, who plays Bill, and William Bendix, who plays their best friend Donnelly, are perfect. And then, of course, you have the hauntingly beautiful performance of Maureen O'Hara, whose presence lingers long over the film, even after she's passed away. And Hitty, stay with Bill, no matter what. Stay with him. Watch over him. Bring him his breakfast and the flour on his napkin. He's so, so little. It's testament to her instinct when it came to her roles that even she knew how successful it would be. She later said of the film that Sentimental Journey was every bit the smash that I thought it would be. It was a rip-your-heart-out tearjerker that reduced my agents and the toughest brass at Fox to mush when they saw it. Well, I guarantee if you surrender yourself to it, you won't fare any better than the toughest brass at Fox. And then, of course, in 1952, we arrive at The Quiet Man. Not only my favourite Maureen O'Hara film, but one of my all-time favourite films ever. For those of you who haven't seen it, and I'm sure 
that number is stupendously small. The Quiet Van is the story of Sean Thornton, played by John Wayne, a retired boxer who's returned from the United States to his birthplace, the tiny and gloriously beautiful Irish village of Innisfree. That little place across the brook, that humble cottage, who owns it now? But the Winterton land, not that she lives there. Think she'd sell it? Who do it? Don't bet on it, because I'm buying it. Now, why would you, why would a Yankee from Pittsburgh want to buy it? I'll tell you why, McAleen, old Glenn, young, small Michael Flynn, who used to wipe my runny nose when I was a kid. Because I'm Sean Thornton, and I was born in that little cottage over there. And I've come home, and home I'm gonna stay. Now, does that answer your questions once and for all, you nosy little man? Sure, Thornton. And look at you now. Seats preserve us. What do they feed you Irish men on that pitch? Steel, Michael Oak. Steel and pig iron furnaces so hot a man forgets his fear of hell. When you're hard enough, tough enough, other things. Other things, Micheline. Within a day of arriving, he's landed in the midst of a landowner's dispute, fallen foul of the local loudmouth squire, Red Will Danaher, been recruited to race in the Innisfree Beach Contest, befriended the village's mischievous drunk, Micheline O'Flynn, and fallen head over heels in love with the squire's hot-headed younger sister, Mary Kate, played with fire and passion by Maureen O'Hara. So bold one you are. But who gave you leave to be kissing me? So you can talk. Yes, I can, I will, and I do. And it's more than talk you'll be getting if you step a step closer to me. Don't worry, you got a wallop. You'll get over it, I'm thinking. Well, some things a man doesn't get over so easy. Like what, supposing? Like the sight of a girl coming through the fields with the sun on her hair, kneeling in church, the face like a saint. Saint indeed. And now come into a man's house to clean it for him? But that was just by way of being a good Christian act. I know it was, Mary Kate Danaher. And I was nicer. Not at all. Good heavens, where to start? Firstly, this is one of the most beautiful films ever made from beginning to end. It's nothing but picture postcard grandeur. Secondly, the finest array of supporting characters, including Barry Fitzgerald as the leprechaun-esque Micheline, who never turns down a drink. Could you use a little water in your whiskey? Wanna drink whiskey? I drink whiskey. And wanna drink water? I drink water. Ward Bond as Father Lonergan, the Catholic priest, and Arthur Shields as Reverend Playfair, the Church of Ireland minister. Then, of course, Victor McLaglan as Red Will Danaher, an iron-fisted brute who's a completely lovable villain. He regret it to his dying day, if ever he lives that long. And bringing up the rear, stellar support in the form of Mildred Natwick, Jack McGowan, Pat O'Malley, the list goes on. Talk about your family affairs. Maureen O'Hara's younger brothers pop up in supporting roles, as does Francis Ford, who was the director John Ford's older brother. Ken Curtis, who plays the accordion player, was also John Ford's son-in-law. And during the beach race, Michael, Antonia, Patrick and Melinda Wayne, all four of John Wayne's children are there. To top it all off, Arthur Shields, who played the Reverend Playfair, was actually the older brother 
of Barry Fitzgerald. So the camaraderie you're seeing on screen really did spill over into real life on this film. The story is absolutely enchanting. The path of true love never running as torturously as it does here. Mary-Kate refuses to settle with Thornton until the issue of her marriage dowry is resolved, and her scheming brother holding it back to create marital discord between his sister and Thornton leads to the entire village entering into a conspiracy of trickery to try and win happiness for the unhappy couple. And it all culminates in one of the screen's most celebrated fistfights as Thornton finally comes out of retirement to battle with his brother-in-law all the way across the county for the honour of the woman he loved. Do you hear that, everybody? The Marquis of Queensbury rule! No, no, the Marquis of Queensbury rule. Marquis of Queensbury rule. Come on, get up, Marcus of Queensbury. It's a completely wonderful fairy tale of a movie. One of those films that you never want to end. It was Maureen O'Hara's personal favourite film and it's not difficult to see why. She said in an interview that I loved Mary-Kate Danaher. I loved the hell and the fire in her, which perhaps sums up her character better than anyone else could even hope to try. When her family announced her death on October the 24th, they actually made mention of the fact that during her final hours on Earth, she'd been listening to music from The Quiet Man. If you haven't seen it, or even if you have, there can be no better way to send off Maureen O'Hara than watching her in The Quiet Man, slipping across the pasture, being chased for a kiss by John Wayne. I know Maureen O'Hara made many, many, many films, such as The Parent Trap and How Green Was My Valley and Rio Grande, which are all fantastic. And I'm sorry if your personal favourite wasn't among the three I chose. But as I said, they're the three that I personally consider to be rather special. Well, when it comes to radio appearances, Maureen O'Hara was no slouch. In fact, she made many appearances on many different shows. I've picked two for you today from very different genres. The first is from Suspense, in which she stars as a debutante sleuth on the trail of a serial killer in an episode entitled The White Rose Murders. Then we'll mosey on over to the Lux Radio Theatre to have our hearts warmed. Look, I know it isn't quite Christmas yet, but there's a certain chill hanging in the air and the festive season is almost upon us. Therefore, we'll treat ourselves to an early Christmas present in the form of a dazzling adaptation of Miracle on 34th Street, starring Maureen O'Hara in her original role, alongside her movie co-stars John Payne and Edmund Gwen. So it's off to Radioland for us for a double bill of the fabulous and eternal Miss Maureen O'Hara. Our star this evening is Miss Maureen O'Hara, whom you've seen rise to stardom in Hollywood within the short space of a year. 
her performances in the 20th Century Fox production, How Green Was My Valley, then more recently in The Immortal Sergeant, and now currently in the RKO production, This Land Is Mine, have given her an enviable place in the ranks of America's new film favorites. Miss O'Hara makes her first appearance on our suspense stage tonight as the heroine of A Study in Homicidal Mania, The White Rose Murders by Cornell Woolrich, which is tonight's tale of suspense. If you have been with us before, you will know that suspense is compounded of mystery and suspicion and dangerous adventure. In this series are tales calculated to intrigue you, to stir your nerves, to offer you a precarious situation, and then withhold the solution until the last possible moment. And so it is with the White Rose murders and the performance of Maureen O'Hara. We again hope to keep you in... Suspense. He stood there waiting. He knew that presently they would come out of the second-rate dance hall, out into the dimly lit street. He listened a while and smiled as the orchestra played that tune inside. And then they came out, the two girls, and still he waited close enough to hear what they were saying. Well, I'll see you at the office tomorrow, Sally. Oh, I don't know how I'll get up. It's after one o'clock. Six hours sleep. Oh, I'll be dead tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Me too. Oh, gosh. Uh, I gotta have at least eight hours or I'm no good at all. I wish I had someone to walk me to the bus. It's four long blocks. I'll walk you down, Sally. Oh, don't bother. We go in different directions. It's no trouble, really. I don't mind. Really, it's not necessary. In the narrow alley that divides the dance hall from an ugly office building, he stood smiling. Just a little inside the alley, he stood stiffly against the wall, his head back, eyes closed, arms straight down, and in his left hand, a white rose. Well, all right then, Sally. Good night. Good night, Joan. See you in the morning. Oh, I hope I don't have to wait long for the bus. <gasps> Who are you? Keep away. Keep away from me. Let me go. Let me go. The girl is dead. Tenderly, the figure straightens her hair and gently places the limp body on the ground. Then he opens her clenched fist and carefully, so that the thorns will not bruise her flesh, he places in her hand the white rosebud. Pardon me, my good man. Is it true that you are the famous detective Terence Riley? Huh? Oh, Jenny, I didn't see you come in. Well, now that I'm here, how about offering to buy a cup of coffee for the girl you're going to marry? You can never get up enough nerve to ask her. Oh, it's no use, Jenny. I guess we better call it quits. I'm just a dick on the homicide squad, and 
That's all I'll ever be. And I'm a rich debutante. We don't belong together. Oh, you've been reading too many of those romantic stories, Terry. What is it this time? What's wrong? Yeah, they call him the White Rose Killer. He's got to be caught. There's a general demotion coming on if he isn't, and that's all I need to get back into uniform. Oh, don't worry, darling. You always look good in blue. Yeah. Just to match the way I feel. Tell me more about the White Rose Killer. What's he like? That's the stumble. He, he could be anybody. No one's ever seen him except the dead. And they don't talk about it afterwards. He just slips out of the shadows and kills and then slips back again. How many has he murdered? Four. He's not through yet. It's going to be one of those chain things if he's allowed to keep on. Are you sure it's always the same one? Yeah. That part of it we're sure of. It's the same touch, the same way of operating every time. How do you know that? Well, it's a rose. A white rosebud. A death rose. Puts it into each victim's hand after he kills her. Her? Yep. It's always a woman. A young woman between 19 and 23. What's behind it? Do you have any idea? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. But here's what I figured out. You know what a rose stands for. Symbolically, I mean. Why, yes, it's, uh... It's the flower of love. The white rose, uh, the bud, has another meaning. Purity, loyalty, devotion, and especially it stands for a young girl. That's right. And that's about the way I see it. So maybe it's a double cross, committed against our murderer by some young girl whom he worshipped and who betrayed his faith in her. You ought to be a detective, not me. (laughs) Thanks, darling. I've got a very fine teacher. (laughs) Ah, sweet. There's another thing. The murders were all committed near... Places where there was music, dance halls, and cabarets and the like. There's a song that brings back the original shock that, you know, gives him the final push over into the darkness. As far as we can figure out, it's the beer barrel polka. Well, how does he commit the murder? Is it always the same way? Mm, always. Strangulation between the hands, with the thumb into the windpipe to keep his victims from crying out. But isn't there anything else you know about him? No, that's, that's why it's so hopeless. He's insane, of course. But there's only this one phase to his insanity. Probably perfectly normal in appearance and behavior. You could pass him on the street and even know it. Well, it's only when he sees someone vaguely like the girl he loved and hears that song, that the one defective wire in him is jangled and short circuit. But, Terry, the flowers, don't the flowers tell you? He must get them somewhere you could trace. Well, we don't know where he gets them. Maybe he steals them or... Terry... What if you were the one to get him? Well, it would mean a citation and a promotion. And then all the things that stand between us would disappear? We could get married? Well, the chances would be a lot better anyway. But what chance have I? Everyone in the department has been working their heads off for weeks and they've all failed. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, Terry, what were the girls like? The ones he killed? Well, as, as I told you, they were all between 19 and 23. Their heights were pretty much the same, too. They were all tall girls, around five feet, six or seven. A little taller than you. And all dark-haired. How did they wear their hair? Why, they... Say, what is this? Oh, nothing, darling. Just just interested. How did they wear their hair? Well, from what I remember, they uh, wore it sort of loose and curly down the back. I suppose each one had a resemblance to that long-dead love of his. That's probably it. Well, anyway, that's how the record stands. And we're all waiting for it to happen again. I see. Uh, 
Terry, um, I'd like to go home now. I shouldn't have told you all that stuff. I've given you the creeps. Oh, come on, Terry. Take me home. Later, Jenny stands by the window in her room, looking out, thinking. She doesn't move for a long time. Then suddenly, quickly, she goes to her closet and begins to rummage through her many pairs of shoes. Carefully, she picks one pair with three-inch heels. Five foot six or seven. Then she walks quickly to the dresser, opens a drawer, takes out a comb and starts redoing her hair. Worn loose and curly down the back. Well, here we go. Edward! Edward! Yes, miss? Is the car ready? Yes, Miss Virginia. I've been waiting for you. Let's go before Mother sees me. Your mother's been looking for you, miss. I hope you didn't tell her. No, Miss Virginia, I didn't. Good. Come on, Edward. Where do you wish to go, Miss Virginia? The Starlight Dance Hall on Grove and 2nd Street. The Starlight, miss? Yes, Edward, that's the place. I wouldn't go there unescorted if I were you, miss. It's one of the worst places in the city. It has a very bad reputation. The Starlight Dance Hall, Edwards. Very good, miss. Very good. Jenny walks slowly around the low-lighted dance hall, trying to make herself conspicuous. A tall figure leaning against a pillar watches her intently as he idly smokes a cigarette. He doesn't seem to belong there. His clothes don't have the nattiness of a dance lover. Jenny pauses not far from him. Deliberately, he throws his cigarette on the floor, steps on it, and slowly walks over to her. Hello. Oh. Oh, hello. You're not with anyone, are you? Oh, no, I, I'm alone. I thought so. I've been watching you all the time. Have you? I haven't seen you dance yet. I don't know anyone here. How about dancing with me, then? All right. Come on, let's go out on the floor. Do you come here often? No. I never go to the same place twice. You don't? Why? I'm always looking for new faces. I'm restless. Do you find the faces you're looking for? Listen. Listen to that song. I like that. I like it very much. Yes, it, it is a nice song. You know, you remind me of someone I used to know. I'm trying to think who. I do? Yeah. You mind if we stop dancing and go over and get a drink? No, uh, let's go. Oh, look. They sell flowers here. Yes, I see. I'll get you some. What kind would you like? Oh, uh, any kind. Uh, you pick it out. All right. Let's see. There's something kind of innocent and young about you. Different from most of the girls that come here. Can't we stay here a little longer? It's intermission now. They won't play again for ten minutes. Come on. But I, I, I like it here. Let's stay a little while longer. Well, then let's go down for some air. We can come back in a few minutes. Come on. But... We'll be back before the music starts. 
Oh, you're hurting my arm. Am I? I'm sorry. <sighs> Fresh air smells good, doesn't it? It's so dark here. Let's go back. You're not scared, are you? Oh, no, it's... it's Let's walk down this alley and back. Please, please. No, you Let me go. Thanks. That's a lovely necklace, beautiful. Why, you're just a cheap... Shut up. All you wanted was my necklace. So long, beautiful. Look out. What's the matter? Behind you, look. Holy... She's dead. A girl. Murdered. With a white rosebud in her hand. Well, Jenny, happened again last night. Just like the other times. A girl strangled in an alley and a white rose in her hand. Any news of the killer? No. He might just as well float through the air for all the trace he leaves. He must have bought the flower upstairs in the dance hall. He must have been there earlier, bought it, and saved no, it until... No, there was only one rose sold up there all night. And to a man who had a different girl with him. We had the flower girl at... How did you know that they sold flowers there? I didn't tell you. Well, I... I must have read it somewhere. You couldn't have. It wasn't in any of the papers. No details were given, just the statement that an unidentified body was found. Well, I... Well, I just imagined that they'd sell flowers in a place like that. Well, I'm glad you don't go near those dance halls. Why, with this nut running around oh, loose... don't bother about that. We'd better catch this killer. And fast. Where, where do you get this wee stuff? To hear you talk, you'd think that you were on the case, too. Wouldn't you think so? To hear me talk? Again, Jenny tours the low dives, hunting for the white rose killer. Her search carries her to the waterfront. And as she walks past each dingy bar, she listens to the jukebox music. After midnight, she passes a dirty windowed saloon. The thin music catches her ear. She pauses and listens, her eyes alive for some sign, some indication of the person she's looking for. Then suddenly her body becomes rigid as her eyes fall upon a figure huddled in the shadows. Someone's watching me. Slowly, she starts to walk up the street. Behind her, the heavy tread of a man's footsteps keep pace with hers. It's a quiet tread, unhurried but deliberate. For several blocks, it keeps the exact distance. Jenny starts to walk faster. I've got to know if he's really following me. The man quickens his pace. Jenny starts across the street, 
The man follows. She's sure now, sure that the man is following her. She fumbles for something in her purse. Her hand closes around a gun. If he tries anything, I'll shoot. You in any trouble, lady? Oh, no, officer. It's all right. You scared him away. Scared who away? Oh, just a man who wanted to bring me flowers. That's all. Well, he brought you one anyhow, lady. What do you mean? Right there on the ground, right by your feet. A white rose. (laughs) Coffee, Mabel. Sure, coming right up. Here you are. Terry. Terry. Hello, Jenny. Sit down. Thank you. Say, what's the matter with you? Look, darling... Read the gossip column in this paper. What daughter of a socially prominent family is that way about a detective and waits for him outside the station house in her limousine every night? Private chauffeur and all. But Mama says no. That's not so funny. Oh, they held a big family war council over me just now. Indian powwow, feathered headdress and everything. They did, huh? Well... What they decide? Oh, I was asked to give my word that I wouldn't see you anymore. I refused, of course, so I'm to be exiled. Where to? Our summer home. It's just a few hours out of town, but I'll be there all by myself. Just with Mrs. Crosby, the housekeeper. Oh, maybe they're right. Why don't you listen to them? Are you on their side, too? No. When are you leaving? Right away. Edwards is driving me out. I just slipped out to let you know. Here's the address and phone number of the place in case you want to reach me. Don't lose it. I won't. Well, what's new and exciting about the White Rose Killer? Our famous lover of flowers? (laughs) We're still trying to track him down. I suppose I'll go looking for him at the flower show that's just opened. Oh, a flower show just opened? Yeah. Well, uh, goodbye now. I'll be seeing you. What uh, floor is the flower show, please? Third floor, miss. Three, please. Third floor. Where's the rose display, please? Uh, To your left, over there. See where the man in the gray coat is? In the gray coat? Oh, yes, thank you. They are lovely, aren't they? Oh, you... You startled me. I'm sorry. I was just admiring the roses. Oh, yes, the nicest flowers here. I I just can't keep my eyes off them. Yes, you you can feel that way about some flowers. That's the way I feel about white roses. Have you been here long? I really don't know. I suppose so. You you see, I've come here every day since the show opened. I like to be near the roses, the white roses. Those big ones are nice. No, I I like the little ones best, the little tightly curled rosebuds. They're so little and innocent. Oh, well, I I really better be going. Are you going down? Yes. Down, please. Here, miss, I, I took a rose for you. Thank you. It's lovely. 
And would you would you care to have a drink with me? Why, yes, thank you. I know the little place a block or two down there. They have nice music. We'll go there. All right, whatever you say. This is it. Where's the music? A nickel in the jukebox does it. Any special song you'd like? No, uh, go ahead and pick one. Okay. Oh, that's my favorite song. Reminds me of a, a girl I used to know. Oh, uh, excuse me, I, um, I want to powder my nose. I'll be right back. Do you mind? No, of course not. Sergeant Thomas speaking. Hello, is, is Terry Riley there? Uh, just a moment, I'll see. Please hurry, it's important. No, sorry, miss. Terry Riley's not here just now. Oh, uh, will you, uh, will you tell him, tell him that I can't keep that date with him? Goodbye. Do you always go to the phone booth when you want to powder your nose? Why, I, uh, well, I, I had to make a call. Uh-huh. I'm afraid I'll have to leave you. Oh, wait. Uh, let me come with you. I'm sorry, miss, but I've got other things to do. Oh. What's the matter? That car. Someone that knows me. Let's get away from here. That's just what I'm going to do. So long, lady. Wait, wait. Please don't go. Miss Virginia. Miss Virginia. I'm sorry, Miss Virginia, but I must speak to you for a minute. Oh, Edwards. What do you want? I'm sorry, miss. You'd better come with me at once. I've been looking for you everywhere. Your mother's been taken seriously ill. Mother? Well, where is she? She's out at the country place, miss. I drove her there shortly before dinner. She wanted to pay you a surprise visit. Oh. I believe the shock of not finding you there upset her, miss. Is she very bad? She had the doctor with her when I left. Mrs. Crosby has gone away for the day. Your mother needs you, miss. Well, let's go. Hurry, Edwards, please. Right, miss. Where is Mother Edwards? In her room, miss. You'd better hurry. Mother? Mother? It's Ginny. Is the doctor in there with you? Mother? Why, there's no one here. The room's empty. The bed hasn't been touched. Edwards, what are you doing? Merely playing a song, miss. A favorite of mine. Uh... A favorite? Yes, Miss Virginia. Where's Mother? She's in the city, Miss. You lied to me. I'm afraid I did, Miss Virginia. Why are you locking the door? You know why, Miss Virginia. It... it can't be. You are not the... The white rose killer. But you see, I am, Miss Virginia. Driving you and your family around day after day. Sitting there right in front of you all the time. It was amusing to watch you hunting for me. Hunting for someone you saw several times a day. It can't be. You're not insane. Of course not. Who said I was? Edward, you know I'm not the girl who betrayed you. Yes, I know that. Well, then unlock the door and let me out. Please, Edward. I've killed five times. I've never regretted it. I'm going to kill you, Miss Virginia. Why, Edward? 
Why? Because you've been so clever. Too clever. You made yourself look like her, the girl who deceived me. I could have killed you the day you first went out looking for me, but I had to be careful. Oh. I almost caught you that night at the waterfront, the night I dropped the white rose when that police car came. Edwards, I... I've never done you any harm. Your sweetheart, Terry. He loves you, doesn't he? Yes. That's good. Because now you won't be able to deceive him like my girl deceived me. Keep away, Edwards. Keep away, or I'll... (laughs) You thought you'd use your gun, eh? Well, don't think I was fool enough to overlook that. I took your gun out of your purse. It won't do you any good to kill me, Edwards. I didn't have anything to do with... No, and you're not going to have a chance to break another man's heart like she broke mine. Jenny! Jenny! Terry, Terry! It won't do you any good to call to him. He can't get in here without breaking down the door. Keep away from me. Terry! It will be too late then, because I'm going to kill you now. Jenny, where are you? Terry! Let me get my hands on that pretty white throat. Oh, keep away. Keep away from me. Uh, Terry, stop! Jenny, are you all right? Yes, Terry, I... I'm all right. Oh, Take it easy. Here. Sit down. Oh, Terry, I was so scared. There was nobody here but Edwards and I. How... How did you know where I was? Oh, it was simple. You were supposed to meet me at the coffee shop. You never broke an appointment, and when you didn't show up, I called the number you gave me. You told me the housekeeper was here all the time, and when there was no answer, I got suspicious and came down. Besides, when I got a message down at headquarters that you had to break a date with me, I knew something was wrong. Are you sure you're all right? Yes, I... I'm, uh... Terry, look. On the floor beside Edwards. A white rose. Must have fallen out of his pocket. That was meant for me. Oh, Terry, it's it's all crushed. Yeah. Crushed and dead. Just like the white rose killer. Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, bring you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Maureen O'Hara, John Payne, and Edmund Gwen in Miracle on 34th Street. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. Our Christmas present to you is the new Christmas classic of our time, Miracle on 34th Street. It's wrapped in a gay covering of laughter, tied with a bright ribbon of good humor, and decorated with the three sparkling stars of the 20th Century Fox picture, Maureen O'Hara, John Payne, and Edmund Gwen. This is a wonderful story for the whole family, and perhaps some families 
may be gathered around a Christmas tree as they listen. Others will be putting up this happy sign of the season in a few days with lights and ornaments and the shining snow that can be made with Lux Flakes. Later, we'll tell you how to do this trick with Lux. But right now, it's curtain time for the play that proves there's a Santa Claus. Miracle on 34th Street. Starring Maureen O'Hara as Doris, John Payne as Fred, and Edmund Gwen in his Academy Award-winning performance as Chris Kingle. It's Thanksgiving Day in New York City. On a broad avenue adjoining Central Park, an annual event is being joyfully awaited. The spectacular parade presented by Macy's department store to herald in the Christmas season. Away from the crowd are two of Macy's public relations experts. He's simply wonderful, Mrs. Walker. Just look at him on that float. The most realistic Santa Claus we've ever had. Why, he didn't even need any padding, did he? Padding? Why, didn't you notice his tummy? So round, so firm, so fully packed. Well, now that everything's under control, where on earth did you find him? I I don't know. I, I just turned around and there he was. And to think that the man whose place he took was intoxicated. With a breath that would knock over a reindeer. Oh, just think if Mr. Macy had seen him. What if Mr. Gimble had seen him? Competition between our stores is tough enough. <laughs> well, the parade's starting. Let's stand at the curb. Not I, Mr. Shellhammer. I'm going home to relax. Anyway, I can see it from there. I live just around the corner. Oh, so you do. Well, I'll see you tomorrow, Mrs. Walker. And congratulations on finding the best Santa Claus in Macy's history. Certainly is a wonderful parade, Susan. Just look at that clown. Gosh, what a giant. Giant, Mr. Gailey? There are no such things as giants. Well, not now, maybe, but in olden days, there's... Really, Mr. Gailey? And you a lawyer. Well, what about the giant that Jack killed? You know, Jack and the Beanstalk? Everybody knows that's a fairy tale. And I agree with my mother. Fairy tales are silly. Come in. Mother, I'm watching the parade. Mr. Gailey invited me. Hello, darling. Susie's told me quite a lot about you, Mrs. Walker. She told me quite a lot about you, too, the man in the front apartment. <laughs> well, this is all part of a plot, Mrs. Walker. I'm very fond of Susie, but I, I also wanted to meet you. At least you're frank. There's no Santa Claus. Oh, don't even mention the name. Why not, Mother? Well, that Santa Claus you see is a last-minute substitute. But why? Remember the way the janitor was last New Year's? Oh, my. Tight as an owl. I, um, I see Susan doesn't believe in Santa Claus either. That's right. She never has. Well, that's the end of the parade. Mother, I've been thinking. It's Thanksgiving, and there are only two of us. Couldn't we invite Mr. Gailey? Well, I... Oh, uh, <laughs> please don't bother. I'll, I'll just have a sandwich or something. But we have such a big turkey. Please, Mother, please. Well, well, I... Did I ask her all right, Mr. Gailey? Susie, shh. <laughs> you asked fine, Susan. Dinner's at three, Mr. Gailey. Hello. 
Mrs. Walker? Yes, Mr. Shellhammer. Your maid said you were at Thanksgiving dinner, but I, I just had to tell you. Your Santa Claus was stupendous. Well, thank you. Mr. Macy himself wants him to be our toy department Santa Claus. Oh, fine. Can you hire him? Oh, oh, oh I already have. Oh, he's a born salesman. I just feel it. Good. We'll talk about it in the morning. Thanks for calling, Mr. Shellhammer. Here he is, Mr. Shellhammer. Here's Santa Claus. Oh, thank you, Alfred. Thank you. Good morning, Santa Claus. Good morning. Now, before you go to the toy department, here's a list of toys that we have to push. Huh? You know, things we're overstocked on. Now, you'll find that a great many children will be undecided as to what they want for Christmas. And when that happens, you immediately suggest one of these items. Do you understand? I certainly do. Fine, that's fine. Now, take the list and Alfred here will show you to your throne in the toy department. And don't you forget, you're working for Macy's. Are you really Santa Claus? Why, of course I am. What do you want for Christmas, little boy? I want a fire engine with a real hose that squirts real wet water. And I won't do it in the house. I'll only do it in the backyard. I promise. And I promise you'll get your fire engine. You see, Mama, I told you you'd get me one. <laughs> That's fine. That's just dandy. You wait here, Mortimer. Mama wants to thank Santa Claus, too. Yes, madam? So what's the matter with you? No, no, no. What's the trouble? I told you before, didn't I? The kid wants a fire engine, but there isn't one to be had anywhere in town. Macy's ain't got any. Gimbal's ain't got any. Nobody's got any. My feet are killing me, and you say, okay, he gets the fire engine. But you can get those fire engines at Schoenfeld's, Lexington Avenue. Only four fifty. a wonderful bargain. Schoenfeld? Yes. Hey, I, I don't get it. Oh, I follow the toy market very closely. Macy's sending people to other stores? Yes. Are you kidding? <laughs> the one important thing is to make the children happy. Whether Macy's or somebody else sells the toy doesn't matter. Oh, don't you feel that way? Who, me? Yes. Oh, yes, yeah, sure. Only I didn't know Macy's did. Yes. I don't get it. I just don't get it. Uh, who's next, please? Right this way to see Santa Claus. <laughs> All right, little girl. You're next. Of course, little girl. You want some roller skates? Well, you shall have them, too. Mama, Mama, he's going to bring me some roller skates. And he has some fine skates here at Macy's, haven't you, Santa Claus? Oh, they're good skates, all right, but, but not quite good enough. Now, I left some really wonderful roller skates at Gimbal's. I'm sure Gimbal's have just what this good little girl wants. Mr. Shellhammer, are you Mr. Shellhammer? Uh, Gimbal's? Gimbal's? That's just what he did say, Gimbal's. Uh, the sales lady said I should speak to you. Gimbal's. I just wanted to congratulate you and Macy's on this wonderful new stunt you're pulling. Gimbal's. Imagine a big outfit like Macy's putting the spirit of Christmas ahead of the commercial. Gimbal's. From now on, I'm going to be a regular Macy customer. All right, Mortimer, we're going. Gimbal's! There's the toy department over there, Mr. Gailey. You certainly know all about Macy's store, don't you, Susan? Well, that's because my mother works here. But I still think it's silly, bringing me here to see Santa Claus. Well, I just feel that when you've talked to okay, him, you might... Okay, Mr. Gailey. I'm certainly willing to try. Well, well, what a fine young lady, eh? What's your name, little girl? Susan Walker. What's yours? Mine? Chris Kringle. I'm Santa Claus. 
Mm. Oh, you don't believe that, eh? Uh-uh. You see, my mother's Mrs. Walker. Oh, 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 oh. But I must say you're the best-looking Santa Claus I've ever seen. Really? Your beard, for instance. It doesn't have one of those things that goes over your ears. <laughs> That's because it's real. Just huh? like I'm really Santa Claus. Now, go ahead. Pull it. Oh, my... My goodness, it is real. Yes, yeah. And now what would you like me to bring you for Christmas? Nothing, thank you. Whatever I want, my mother will get. If it's sensible and doesn't cost too much. Oh. That's quite right, Susan. Oh, hello, Mother. Hello, Walker. Mr. Gailey. Hello. Um, the explanation for all this is very simple. Your maid's mother sprained her ankle. She had to go home, so she asked me to bring Susie down to you. And as long as we were here, I... I figured we might as well say hello to Santa Claus. He has real whiskers, Mother. Susan, would you mind standing over there a minute? If you want me to. I, um, I shouldn't have brought Susie to see Santa, is that it? Now you're making me feel completely heartless. I'm sorry. Don't you see? I tell Susan that Santa Claus is a myth. And you show her a very convincing old man with real whiskers. Well, whom is she to believe? Yeah, that's right, isn't it? When Susan was a baby, her father and I were divorced. And ever since then, I've protected my child by teaching her realities. If you don't believe in fairy tales and fantasy, you can never be hurt or disillusioned. We were talking about Susie, Mrs. Walker. And I must ask you to let me raise her as I see fit. All right, dear. The store's going to close soon. We'll run along to my office. Alfred said you wanted to see me, Mrs. Walker. Oh, um, oh, yes. Come in. I, um, uh, I'd be grateful if you would please tell Susan that you're not really Santa Claus, that there actually is no such person. Oh, but Mrs. Walker, not only is there such a person, but here I am to prove it. No, 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 no. You misunderstand. I, I want you to tell her the truth. Now, um, what's your real name? Chris Kringle. And I always tell the truth. Susan, I'll bet you're in the first grade. Second grade. I mean your real name. Well, that is my real name. My goodness, the second grade? Very well. I have your employment card right here. I'd look it up on that. Mm, that's a very cute dress you have on, Susan. It's for Macy's. We get 10% off. Oh. So, <clears throat> you always tell the truth, do you? Mm -hmm. Look at your employment card. Name, Chris Kringle. Address, Brooks Memorial Home, Great Neck, Long Island. You may call the home if you'd care to confirm that, Mrs. Walker. It's a home for elderly gentlemen. Would you also like me to confirm this? What's that? Date of birth. As old as my tongue and a little bit older than my teeth. <laughs> Place of birth. North Pole. Now, really. Why, I believe you doubt me, Mrs. Walker. And this tops everything. Next of kin. Oh, that. Dasher, dancer, prancer, and vixen. <laughs> I'm sorry to have to do this, Mr. Um, uh, Kringle. But the uh, the Santa Claus that we had two years ago is back in town, and I feel that we owe it to him to. Uh... What have I done something wrong? Uh, no, no, no. It's it's just that we feel. Oh, excuse me. Hello. Uh, this is Mr. Shellhammer, Mrs. Walker. Drop whatever you're doing. Mr. Macy wants to see us immediately. Oh, I'll be right up. Um, I'm afraid I'll have to be very abrupt with you. I have to see Mr. Macy. You'll be paid for the full week, Mr. Kringle, and uh, I'll send your check to that address. Oh, uh, come in.
Come right in, Mrs. Walker. Mr. Shellhammer. Thank you, Mr. Macy. Now, about this new policy you two initiated. Uh, oh. Macy's Santa Claus sending customers to Gimble. Well, I, I, I can explain everything, Mr. Macy. You don't have to explain a thing. Just look at my desk. Forty-two telegrams and over 500 phone calls. Grateful parents expressing undying gratitude to Macy's department store. Why, you... You don't say. From now on, not only will our Santa Claus continue in this manner, but every salesperson in the entire store. You mean that if we haven't got what the customer asks for, we're to... We're to send him where he can get it. No high-pressuring and forcing a customer to take something he doesn't really want. I think that's wonderful, Mr. Macy. Why, we'll be known as, uh, as the helpful store, the friendly store, the store that places public service ahead of profits. And consequently, we will make more profits than ever. <laughs> As for you, Mrs. Walker and Mr. Shellhammer, you'll find a more practical expression of my gratitude in your Christmas envelope. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Yes. And tell that wonderful Santa Claus I won't forget him either. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I'll tell him myself in the morning. Uh, yes, indeed, Mr. Macy. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Good, Good night, Mr. Macy. And thank you again, sir. Oh, imagine a bonus... Yes. Well, what's the matter with you? Mr. Shellhammer, I just fired him. Who? Santa Claus. No, 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 you couldn't have. But I did. He, he's crazy, Mr. Shellhammer. He really thinks he is Santa Claus. I don't care if he thinks he, he's the Easter Bunny. Find him. Act two of Miracle on 34th Street will continue in a moment. Well, Libby, have you given Santa your Christmas list? Yes, indeed, John. And number one on my list is a pair of Chinese pajamas with a three-quarter coat and little upstanding collar. Just like the ones Mata Torin wears in Rogue's Regiment. Perhaps you'd better have the wardrobe mistress of Universal International show Santa what you mean. Well, I'm sure Dick Powell or Stephen McNally could give him a good description. They found Marta very glamorous in this modern story of the French Foreign Legion. And what a villain Vincent Price is in Rogue's Regiment. Mm -hmm. I was on the edge of my seat through the whole picture. And you talk about a pair of pajamas. <laughs> well, they were very special. Marta liked them so well, she had four pairs made for her personal wardrobe. And she was delighted when they told her she could lux them. That's about the easiest care in the world. Especially now with the new tiny diamonds of Lux. Another triumph of the famous Lever Laboratories. These tiny diamonds are so much faster, they burst into suds the instant water touches them. And make wonderfully rich suds that last and last. Don't colors look marvelous when they're luxed? So fresh and new. No wonder smart girls say they won't risk wrong washing methods. Tests prove that with gentle care with Lux Flakes, really makes a difference. Lux slips in 90s, Stayed new looking three times as long. And that's just like getting three pretty slips for the price of one. A really thoughtful Santa would put a box of Lux Flakes in every lingerie gift next Friday night. Here's our producer, Mr. William Keeley. Act two of Miracle on 34th Street, starring Marina O'Hara as Doris, John Payne as Fred, and Edmund Gwen as Chris Kringle. <laughs> It was a frantic few hours that Doris spent last night, rushing out to the Brooks Memorial Home in Long Island and assuring Chris Kringle that Macy's wanted him back as Santa Claus. And 
Now Chris is again presiding over the crowded toy department. While in her office, Doris and Mr. Shellhammer... Don't you understand, Mr. Shellhammer? That old man with the nice white whiskers insists that he is Santa Claus. Why, he's out of his mind. What if he should have a, a fit or something? Oh, no, I've got to tell Mr. Macy. Yes, but maybe he's only a little crazy. Anyway, you can't be sure until he's examined. We'll send him to Mr. Sawyer. Sawyer? In personnel. He's paid to examine employees, isn't he? And now, by the way, <laughs> what do you think of this? What is it? A full-page ad Macy's is running in tomorrow's newspapers. Macy's is running it? But it's all about the other stores, Gimbel's and Snacks I know, and... I know. Mr. Macy's idea to help our customers find what they want. It's revolting, isn't it? That Santa Claus certainly has started something. Oh, well. I'll get a hold of him in his lunch hour and send him up to Mr. Sawyer. So I changed my clothes, Mr. Sawyer, and came right up. Oh. Well, then that's your own beard, huh? Oh, oh yes, yes. Mm. Interesting complex in back of that. Why do you carry a cane? Always carry a cane, Mr. Sawyer. Well, that is when I wear street clothes. Hmm. I carved this cane out of a runner from one of my old sleighs. What's that? What's that? With a fine, solid silver top. <clears throat> who was the first president of the United States? Oh? Oh, give me a difficult one. <laughs> like who was... Who was vice president under James Monroe? I'm conducting this examination. The answer is Daniel D. Tompkins. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh. You're a... You're a rather nervous man, aren't you, Mr. Sawyer? Hmm? <laughs> Tell me, do you, um... Do you get enough sleep? My personal habits are no concern of yours. Now, what hand am I holding up? Right hand. How many fingers do you see? Three. Oh, dear, oh, dear. You bite your nails, too. Oh. oh. Stand up now. Feet together. Arms extended. Muscular coordination tests? I've taken dozens of these tests. Mr. Sawyer, are you happy at home? What? That will be all, Mr. Kringle. The examination is over. Thank you. Yeah, and it may interest you to know I've been happily married for 22 years. Very happily married. Delighted to hear it. Goodbye, uh, Mr. Sawyer. Miss Paul. Yes, sir. Get Mrs. Walker on the phone. Yes, sir. But your wife, Mr. Sawyer, she's called four times already. Well, you tell my big fat wife to shut up and mind her own business. Here's Mrs. Walker, sir. Uh, all right. <clears throat> Hello. Oh, I, I was just going to call you, Mr. Sawyer. Oh? There's a Dr. Pierce stopping by this afternoon at three. Who's Dr. Pierce? He's Oh, there's hardly any point in discussing it, Mrs. Walker. Obviously, the old man should be discharged. So, Dr. Pierce, Kringle should be dismissed immediately and sent to a mental institution. Oh, now, just a minute, Mr. Sawyer. Ah, he's deluded saying that he's Santa Claus. It's a delusion for good. I found he only wants to be friendly and helpful. His whole manner suggests aggressiveness. Look at the way he carries that cane. Mrs. Walker, naturally, I can't discharge that loony, so when he exhibits his maniacal tendencies, please realize the responsibility is completely yours. Well, I'm right back where I started. Mrs. Walker, I assure you, Chris Kringle has no maniacal tendencies. But if there's the slightest possibility of us causing any trouble... What trouble? All that needs happen is a policeman ask his name. Chris Kringle, clang, clang, and Macy's Santa Claus lands up in the psychopathic ward. Well, you can prevent that very simply. Now, there must be someone here at the store who could rent him a room. 
Then they could both come to work together. I'd just as soon he avoided that long train ride to Long Island anyway. You mean sort of take custody of him? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think that Mr. Kringle would agree to that? Oh, I'm sure he'll agree. Well, in in that case... uh... Now, let me see. Who do I know who could rent him a room? you're going to have dinner with us, Mr. Kringle. Oh, thank you, Susan. I'm also very glad you're going to live next door with Mr. Gailey. Oh, why? Because you're nice to talk to. Oh, I say, what a fine young man that Mr. Gailey is, eh? Just think, allowing me to share his apartment, a mere stranger. He did it because Mother hinted to him. Oh, well, anyway, I'm very grateful. Shall I tell you what I did in school today? By all means. Any games? Yes. And a very silly game, too. They played zoo, and each child was supposed to be an animal. Oh, but Susan, they were just pretending. But that's what makes the game so silly. Oh. Well, of course, in order to play games, you need imagination. Oh, uh, that's when you see things, but they're not really there, huh? Oh, yes. Yes, but, you know, to me, imagination is a place all by itself. Now, you've heard of the French nation. Mm-hmm. Hmm? And the British nation. Yes. Well, this is the imagination. <laughs> no. A very interesting place, too. Now, how would you like to be able to make snowballs in summertime, eh? What? Or be the Statue of Liberty in the morning, and in the afternoon, fly south with a flock of geese? Well, I'm quite sure I'd like it, but... Oh, it's very simple. Very. Well, anyway, look here. The next time they play zoo, you can be a monkey. But I don't know how to be a monkey. Don't you? Oh, I'll show you. Now, first, you bend over a little, like uh, like this, see? Now, let your arms hang loose, see? Like this? Yeah, that's fine, fine. Now, put your hand over here and start scratching, see? <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's excellent, Susan. That's as fine a bit of scratching as I've ever seen. Yeah. Now, now you start chattering. Chattering? Yes, now listen. See? And keep scratching. Now then, look here. We'll do it together, see? Chatter and scratch and scratch and chatter, see? That's fine, Susan. Fine. You're doing beautifully. Beautifully. Yes. (laughs) Susan. Susan. Are you still awake? Uh Uh-huh. I've, uh... Just coming to say goodnight, Susan, that's all. Now, look here, about Christmas. There must be something you'd like for Christmas. Well, I've certainly thought about something, Mr. Kringle. You have? Well, what is it, eh? Tell me. It's right here on the night table, see? I tore this page out of a magazine. It's a picture of a house. Oh, that's what you want. Is it a doll's house? Colonial architecture. Oh, not a doll's house, a real house. A real house? Yes. And if you're really Santa Claus, you can get it for me. Now, 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 wait a minute, Susie. What could you possibly do with a big house? Live in it with my mother. And a backyard with a big tree to put a swing on. And a garden and a... Oh, well. Why even discuss it? Susie. Susie, could I, uh... Could I keep this picture? Just, uh, just in case? I guess so. Thank you, dear. Thank you. 
Well, Mr. Gailey is waiting for me. Good night, Monkey. Good night, Mr. Kringle. Take whichever bed you want, Mr. Kringle. You're very kind, really. Uh, tell me, Mr. Gailey, what is it you just do for a living, eh? Huh? Oh, I'm a lawyer. Haslip, Haslip, Sherman, and Mackenzie. Oh. Hmm. And you, uh, you like living here in the city? Well, it's convenient. But someday I'd like to get a place on Long Island. Huh. Not a big house, just one of those junior partner deals around Manhasset. Oh, one of those little colonial houses, eh? Yeah. 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 A little colonial house would be swell. Good, good, yes. You're, um, <clears throat> you're quite fond of Mrs. Walker, aren't you? <laughs> a lot of good it does me. She lives in a cast iron shell that's just a little difficult to penetrate. Oh. Well, you must try a little harder, Mr. Gailey. You know, Mrs. Walker and that child are a couple of lost souls. And it's up to us to help them. See? No. Yeah, she... Oh, well, shall I turn out the light? No, no, no. no? no. I'm not going to be cheated out of this. You know, all my life I've wondered about it, and now I'm going to find out. Tell me, does Santa Claus sleep with his whiskers outside or inside the cupboard? <laughs> oh, outside, of course. Outside, by all means. The cold air makes them grow. Oh, thank you very much. Come in, Mrs. Walker. Come in. Thank you, Mr. Macy. I've just heard something very exciting. You have? Well, let me tell you something very exciting. Our policy of being kind to customers has tripled our sales. Now, what do you think of that? That's wonderful, Mr. Macy. And Gimbel's thinks it's wonderful, too. Gimbel's? Gimbel's are adopting the same policy. Well, is that so? And it gives me an idea. As long as Gimbel's are doing the same thing, why not some pictures for the newspapers? Pictures? Yes. You and Mr. Gimbel shaking hands. Shaking hands? R.H. Macy and... and Gimbel? Well... well, yes. Yes, yes, why not? With Santa Claus. It's a great idea, Mrs. Walker. Macy and Gimbel shaking hands. <laughs> That's enough pictures, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Mr. Gimble? Come on, R.H. Now we'll go over to my store and get some really good pictures. Oh, just a minute. I have something here for Santa Claus. Here you are, Mr. Kringle. A check in appreciation of all you've done. Mr. Macy, why, that's most kind of you. I didn't think you were that generous, R.H. That's quite a check. What are you going to do with it, Mr. Kringle? Well, I have a friend. Uh, Dr. Pierce, he needs a new x-ray machine. You buy the machine through the store. 10% discount. Nonsense. Come over to Gimbel's. We'll furnish it at cost. Oh, keep it up, gentlemen. Keep it up. <laughs> at this rate, my friend will have a whole new hospital. <laughs> How did the pictures turn out, Mr. Kringle? Oh, fine, Alfred, fine. How about a game of checkers during lunch, eh? Oh, not today, Chris. I, I don't feel so good. Oh, What's the matter, Alfred? Oh, nothing much. You remember I was telling you how I like to play Santa Claus over at the Y and give out packages to the kids? Yeah. Well, I was telling Mr. Sawyer about it, and he says that's very bad. That psychologically, it's all wrong. Wrong? To be nice to children? 
Well, he says guys who play Santa Claus do it because when they was young, they must have done something bad. Now they do something they think is good to make up for it, see? It's what he calls a guilt complex. Alfred, what else has he found wrong with you? Oh, nothing much. Just that I hate my father. I didn't know it, but he says I do. Excuse me. Hey, ain't you going to have lunch? Later. Right now, I have an appointment with Mr. Sawyer. What do you mean, breaking into my office like this? Are you a licensed psychiatrist? What business is it of yours? I have great respect for psychiatry and great contempt for meddling amateurs who go around practicing it. Oh, shut up. You ought to be horsewhipped. Taking a boy like Alfred and filling him up with complexes and phobias... I think I'm better equipped to judge that than you. Just because Alfred wants to be kind to children, you tell him he has a guilt complex. Yes. Having the same delusion, you couldn't possibly understand. Oh. And don't you wave that cane at me. Either you stop analyzing Alfred, or I'll go straight to Mr. Macy and tell him what a contemptible fraud oh, you are. Get out of here. Get out of here before I have you thrown out. There's only one way to handle a man like you. Maybe this will knock some sense into you. Oh! Oh, help! Oh, my head! My head! Oh! Good day, Mr. Sawyer. Oh, Miss Prawn! Get me the police! Get me Mrs. Walker! Get me the psychopathic ward in Bellevue Hospital! You can see Mr. Kringle now, Mr. Gailey. Thank you, nurse. Hello, Chris. Hello, Fred. Chris, I've been speaking to the doctors. They said they've given you some tests. Oh, yes. Same old tests. Except this time you failed to pass them. Chris, you deliberately failed. Why? Why? Well, because I had great hopes, Fred. I had a feeling Mrs. Walker was beginning to believe in me. And now... Well, now I discover she was only humoring me all the time. But this wasn't Doris's idea at all. Mr. Sawyer had you sent up here before she even knew about it. But why... Why didn't she come to me and explain things? Because she didn't want to hurt you. Oh, well, it's not just Mrs. Walker. It's... Well, now, take Mr. Sawyer. He's contemptible, dishonest, deceitful. Yet he's out there and I'm in here. Well, if that's normal, I don't want it. But you can't just think of yourself, Chris. What happens to you matters to a lot of other people. People like me who believe in what you stand for and people like, well, like Susie, who are just beginning to. Chris, you're letting us down. I... Well, Fred may be all right. I... Of course you're right. I ought to be ashamed of myself. Let's get out of here. Now, wait a minute. You flunked your mental examination, but good. Oh, yes. So I did. Well, well, anyway, you're a lawyer. You fix it. Hey, look, I can't just... Now, I won't let you down, and you won't let me down. Chris, now take it easy. Look, there'll have to be a hearing. If you're going to be committed, it has to be before a judge. Well? Well, if I can do anything at all, it'll have to be in courtroom. Now sit tight, Chris. I'll get an idea. I have to get an idea. You, uh, uh, sent for me, Mr. Mason? I certainly did, Mr. Sawyer. I brought my family to the toy department to see our Santa Claus. And our Santa Claus isn't there. He's in Bellevue. Yeah. Yes, Mr. Macy. Because he's a lunatic. Yes, sir. A l lunatic. <laughs> lunatic, my foot. Now, you listen to me, Sawyer. You get that case dropped right away, or you'll have another lump to match the one he gave you. But it's out of my hands. Mr. Kringle goes to court in the morning. Well, just see that he's back in the toy department by afternoon. Now, get out of here. <laughs> 
Gailey. Uh, Mr. Gailey. Yes? I've been looking all over for you. I'm Mr. <clears throat> Sawyer. Oh, so you're Sawyer. Yes. I, uh, I was just speaking to the court clerk, and he said you represent Miss Kringle. <clears throat> well, I represent Mr. Macy. Well, then I'll see you in court. Oh, no. Uh, uh, that's what I wanted to speak to you about. Now, Mr. Macy would like to drop the whole case right now. You see, we're most anxious to avoid any publicity. No publicity, oh. huh? Well, that's very interesting. Oh, then you'll cooperate? You know something, Sawyer? You've just given me the idea I've been searching for. Oh, good, good. If I'm going to win this case, I'm going to have to have public opinion and plenty of it. And publicity's just the way to do it. Thanks. And uh, so long, Mr. Sawyer. Uh, Mr. Gailey? But Mr. Gailey! Look at these newspapers, Chris. Here. Uh -huh. Evening Dispatch. Doctors doubt sanity of Santa who launched goodwill campaign. Oh, my. Daily Bulletin. Macy's Santa Claus to have lunacy hearing. Mm. What's this one? The New York Express. Is Chris Kringle crazy? Court case coming. Kiddies cry calamity. <laughs> You've driven the United Nations clear back to page five. Well, get a good night's sleep, Chris. We go before Judge Harper at ten tomorrow morning. Pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Our stars will return with Act Three of Miracle on 34th Street in a moment. When a new player signs a contract with 20th Century Fox, she soon gets well acquainted with Miss Helena Sorrell, head dramatic coach. Helena, do you like to watch your pupils perform in a picture? Oh, of course, John, because I take a personal interest in them. I'm especially proud of Betty Grable and her new picture, When My Baby Smiles at Me. Betty's become a really fine dramatic actress. She certainly has. She and Dan Daly are magnificent as a couple of vaudeville hoofers. And Betty's costumes in When My Baby Smiles at Me gave me a thrill. And I was amazed how many things the wardrobe department washed with Lux Flakes. It reminded me of my theatrical days when I was on the road and lived in a couple of trunks. A box of Lux Flakes in each? <laughs> That's absolutely true, John. I was never without it. In my hotel or at the theater. Well, then, you, you've probably discovered that the new tiny diamonds of Lux are more wonderful than ever. They're so much faster and richer. Do more for you, too. They remove soil which other types of suds can't. Leave things cleaner, fresher. And Lux flakes keep colors lovely. You're right there. That's why it's foolish to risk wrong-washing methods that may fade colors. Actual tests show that with gentle Lux flakes care... Colors stay lovely up to three times as long. That's a good tip for girls who get nice blouses and sweaters for Christmas. Right you are. And thank you for coming tonight, Helena Sorrell. We return you now to William Keeley. And the curtain rises on the third act of Miracle on 34th Street, starring Maureen O'Hara as Doris, John Payne as Fred, and Edmund Gwen as Chris. For a few weeks, a jolly elderly gentleman named Chris Kringle has been working minor miracles as Macy's Santa Claus. But now his sanity has been seriously questioned. And in a crowded courtroom, 
Judge Harper listens patiently as the assistant district attorney summons Chris to the witness stand. Now, uh, this is not a trial, Mr. Kringle. It's just a hearing, so you don't have to answer any questions. <clears throat> now then, uh, where do you live, please? Well, it seems to me that's what this hearing will decide, won't it? <laughs> Mr. Kringle, do you believe that you are Santa Claus? Of course I do. That's all, Your Honor. The state rests its case. Well, Mr. Gailey? Your Honor, Mr. Mara contends my client is not sane because he believes he is Santa Claus. An entirely logical conclusion. Anyone who thinks he's Santa Claus is crazy. Your Honor, you believe yourself to be Judge Harper. Yet no one questions your sanity because you are Judge Harper, do they? Mr. Kringle is the subject of this sanity hearing, not I. Well, Your Honor, I intend to prove that Mr. Kringle is Santa Claus. Mr. Mara, I thought you said this was a cut-and-dried sanity hearing. Well, I thought it was, Your Honor. Uh, <clears throat> in view of Mr. Gailey's statement, I'll have to review the entire background of this case. Court's adjourned till tomorrow morning. <laughs> Hello, Doris. I'm sorry I'm late, but get ready. We're really going to celebrate tonight. What are we celebrating? Well, didn't you read the papers? Santa's mouthpiece throws bombshell on New York Supreme Court. Oh, Fred, you're not really serious about this. You can't possibly prove that Chris Kringle is Santa Claus. Well, you saw Mr. Macy and Mr. Gimble shake hands. That wasn't possible either. What does your firm have to say about it? Hayslip and Mackenzie and, and the rest of them? That I've... Uh jeopardize their prestige, and either I drop this impossible case or they'll drop me. You see? So I beat them to it. I quit. Fred, you threw away a career because of a sentimental whim? Well, I'll open my own office. And what kind of clients will you get? Oh, probably a lot of people like Chris who are being pushed around. That's the only fun in law anyway. Doris, look, don't you have any faith in me at all? No, it's not a question of faith. It's it's just common sense. But faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. It's not just Chris that's on trial. It's everything he stands for. Human kindness and love oh, and dignity. Oh, Fred, listen. We've seen a lot of each other the last couple of weeks. I, well, I've become fond of you. We've talked about some wonderful plans, haven't we? And then you do this. Go on an idealistic binge, throw away your security, and expect me to be happy about it. And I expect too much. Is that it? Well, that's that, I guess. Good night, Doris. Hello. Yes, this is Mr. Mara. Well, can't it wait till tomorrow? I'm eating din... Who's been subpoenaed? Well, how do you think I feel about it? I'll see you tomorrow. R.H. Macy's been subpoenaed. Oh, my. Those reporters. They make me look like a sadistic monster who likes nothing better than to drown pussycats and tear wings off butterflies. Just quiet, dear. Tommy's still awake. Oh, oh, yeah. It'd, it'd just break his heart if he knew what his daddy is doing. I'm doing my job as assistant district attorney. Well, I'm not so sure, but, I, but that I agree with them. Mr. Kringle looks like a very nice old man, and I don't see why you have to keep persecuting him. I'm not persecuting him. I'm prosecuting him. <laughs> I like the old man, too, but, but there's nothing I can do about it. You know something, Thomas? Sometimes I wish I'd married a butcher or a plumber. Well, if I lose this case, it's very possible you'll get your wish. R.H. <laughs> Macy, I, I wonder what he's going to pull tomorrow. 
Proceed to the witness, Mr. Gailey. Now then, Mr. Macy, if you recognize the defendant, please tell us who he is. Why, Chris Kringle, of course. Do you believe him to be of sound mind? Sound mind? I wish I had a dozen like him. Mr. Macy, you are under oath. Do you believe that man is Santa Claus? Well, now, that's a rather delicate... Uh... Just think of those headlines tomorrow. Macy admits his Santa Claus is fraud. You keep out of this, Gimble. What did you say? Yo, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> no, Nothing, Mr. Barber, nothing. <laughs> well, I wish you would. Is that man Santa Claus? Yes, in my opinion, he most certainly is. Your Honor, there is no such person as Santa Claus, and everybody knows it. Can you prove there isn't any? I won't even try. I'll not waste the court's time with such childish nonsense. Your Honor, the prosecution requests an immediate ruling from this court. Is there or is there not a Santa Claus? Well, now, uh, I, uh... The court will take a short recess to consider the question. <laughs> Why, Charlie, what are you doing here? Can't an old friend visit you in your chambers? And if you ask me, you never needed a friend like you do now. This Kringle case? Well, I certainly don't see what they're making such a fuss about. Henry, that's Santa Claus you've got out there. On trial for lunacy. This case is dynamite. And you're coming up for re-election soon. Charlie, you know what happened last night? Martha brought the grandchildren over. They... They wouldn't kiss Grandpa. <laughs> they wouldn't even talk to me. Ah, you see what I mean? If you rule there is no Santa Claus, you better start looking for that chicken farm right now. I'm a responsible judge. How can I seriously rule that there is a Santa Claus? Because of what happens if you don't. The kids read about it and they don't hang up their stockings. Now what happens to all the toys that are supposed to be in those stockings? Nobody buys them. The toy manufacturers have to lay off employees. By now, you've got the AFL and the CIO against you. <laughs> yes, and they're going to say it with votes, see? Oh, and the department stores are going to love you, too. <laughs> yes, sir, Henry. And what about the Salvation Army? They got a Santa Claus on every street corner. They've taken a lot of money to help the poor. But go ahead, Henry. You go in there and rule there isn't any Santa Claus. But if you do, you can count on getting just two votes, your own and that district attorney's out there. One vote, Charlie. He, he's a Republican. <laughs> oh, well, let's get this over with. The, uh, the question of Santa Claus seems to be, uh, Largely a matter of opinion. The uh, tradition of American justice demands a broad and unprejudiced view of such a controversial matter. But, Your Honor... This court, therefore, intends to keep its mind open. We shall ask for evidence on either side. But the burden of proof clearly rests with my opponent. Can he produce any evidence to support his views? If Your Honor please, I can. Will Thomas Mara please take the stand? Who, me? No. Thomas Mara, Jr. I believe he and his mother are both in court today. Hi, Papa. Hi. Tommy, do you believe in Santa Claus? I sure do. Gosh, he gave me a brand new sleigh last year. Now, um, what does Santa Claus look like, Tommy? Well, there he is, sitting right over there. Your Honor, I protest. Overruled. Tell me, Tommy, uh, 
Why are you so sure there's a Santa Claus? Because my papa told me so, didn't you? Thank you, Tommy. You can go back to your mother now. See you later, papa. You certainly will. Your Honor. Don't forget Santa Claus. This year I want a football helmet. Don't worry, Tommy. You will get it. Mr. Kringle, if you don't mind. I'm sorry, sir. Your Honor, the state of New York concedes the existence of a Santa Claus. But in so conceding, we demand that Mr. Gailey stop representing and presenting personal opinion as evidence. I insist he submit authoritative proof that Mr. Kringle here is the one and only Santa Claus. Well, Mr. Gailey, are you prepared to show that Mr. Kringle is Santa Claus on the basis of unprejudiced authority? Well, sir, no, not now. I, I need a little time. Why not now? Tomorrow, Your Honor. Very well. Courts adjourn till tomorrow morning. Whew. Oh, brother. Now, come, Susan, dear. Finish your supper. But I can't, Mother. All those things they're saying in the newspapers about Mr. Kringle and Mr. Gailey. They're having this trial because he says he's Santa Claus. He's so, he's so kind and, and nice and jolly. Not like anyone else I know. He must be Santa. You know something? I think perhaps you're right. Is Mr. Kringle sad now, Mother? I'm afraid he must be. Then I'll write him a letter. Maybe that'll make him feel better. I'll cheer him up. Oh, postman, postman. Yeah, lady? Would you mind taking this letter? Oh, sure, lady. We're going straight down to the post office now. Okay, Louie. Take it away. Well, what do you know, Louie? Another letter for Santa Claus. Hey, here's a new one. Instead of the North Pole, this kid's got it addressed to Chris Kringle, New York County Courthouse. Well, the kid's right. Huh? Oh, yeah, sure. They got him on trial down there. <laughs> he claims he's Santa Claus and the DA claims he's nuts. Hey, hmm? hey, I got an idea. Hmm? How many Santa Claus letters we got down there in the dead letter office? Oh, who knows? Must be 50,000 bags and bags all over the joint. I... He... You mean... What, Flaky? Why not? Wouldn't it be nice to get rid of them all? Wouldn't it? <laughs> boy, oh, boy. Look, Louie, as soon as we get to the post office, we go and see the supervisor. You know something? I bet we both get promoted. <laughs> and since the defense has been unable to submit one shred of proof that Kris Kringle is the one and only Santa Claus, and since tonight is Christmas Eve, I ask, Your Honor, that this hearing be terminated without further delay. I protest I do have evidence. Five minutes ago, you said you didn't. During Mr. Mara's oration, the bailiff handed my client the evidence I refer to. What evidence? This letter, Your Honor. Oh, yes, Mr. Kringle. It's from Susan Walker. She believes in me. Oh, this letter means more to me than anything in the world. That letter, Your Honor, was delivered by the United States Post Office, an official agency of the federal government. The Post Office Department was one of the largest business concerns in the world. Last year, did a gross volume of over $1 billion. Your and this year... Your Honor, I'm sure we're all gratified that the Post Office is getting along so well. <laughs> But what bearing has it on the sanity of that man? My point is that the post office department is a model of efficiency. 
Furthermore, the laws of this country make it a criminal offense to willfully misdirect mail or intentionally deliver it to the wrong party. The state of New York is second to none in his admiration of the post office department. We're very happy to concede, Mr. Gailey's... Uh, for the record, Mr. Mara. For the record. Anything to get on with this case. Thank you. Your Honor, that letter just received by Mr. Kringle is positive proof that a competent... One letter is hardly positive proof. I have further exhibits, Your Honor, but I, I hesitate to produce them. Come, come, Mr. Gailey. Put them here on my desk. But, Your Honor, I, I don't... I said put them on my desk. All right, boys, bring them in. Your, your Honor, what, what is this? Empty those mail sacks on Judge Harper's desk. Yeah. Well, well, but uh, bring them all in or be fined for contempt of court. Uh, no, no, just a second here. Uh, we'll do it, Your Honor, through rain, through sleet, through courtrooms, anything. We deliver. Uh, Mr. Gailey. Your Honor, every one of those letters and every one of those mail sacks is addressed to Santa Claus. The post office is to deliver them. Therefore, the post office department recognizes Chris Kringle to be the one and only Santa Claus. Since the United States government declares this man to be Santa Claus, this court will not dispute it. Case dismissed. And for heaven's sake, get this mail out of my courtroom. So as soon as I got out of court, I came straight to Macy's to see you, Doris. Oh, Chris, I'm so glad you won. <sighs> well, we're having a big Christmas party at the Brooks' home tomorrow morning. I'd like so much to see you and Susan there. We'll be there, Chris. Oh, Chris, couldn't you, couldn't you come home now and have dinner with us? Now? Tonight? Me? My goodness, Doris, it's, it's Christmas Eve. Alfred, Alfred, look, look who came all the way out here to the home just for our Christmas party. Chris, it's, it's Mr. Macy. Mr. Gimble, too. Oh, excuse me, Alfred. Mrs. Walker and Susan have to leave now, and I want to see them before they go. So forgive me, will you? But, Susie, darling, you've got so many presents. Not the one I wanted. Not the one Mr. Kringle was going to get for me. Well, what was it? Doesn't matter. I knew I wouldn't get him, but I thought he'd at least tell me why. Susie. I'm sorry, Susie. I tried my best, but... You couldn't get it because you're not Santa Claus. Susan. Just a nice old man like Mother said. But I was wrong when I told you that. You must believe in Mr. Kringle and keep right on doing it. You must have faith in him. But that doesn't make sense, Mother. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. What? I mean, just because things don't turn out the way you want them to the first time, you've still got to believe in people. I found that... Hello, Doris. Fred. Mr. Gailey, Mr. Gailey. Merry Christmas, Susie. Gosh, you'll just get here and we're ready to leave. Oh, I've been here. Oh. And if you're ready to leave, I'll drive you home. Before you go, here. Here's a map I've made for you. You'll miss a lot of traffic. About four miles south, you'll see Ashley Avenue. Now, that's the street you want. Ashley Avenue. Thanks, Chris. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Fred. And to you, my dear... And to you, Susie. I believe, Mr. Kringle. I do. Silly, I suppose. But I do. I don't understand it, Fred. The map Chris gave definitely says Ashley Avenue. 
Well, we've been on Ashley Avenue Stop now the for... Stop the car! Oh, stop the car, please! Susie, what is it, darling? What's the matter? There it is! The house! The house! Susie! What in the world? She's running into that house. But at least there's no one home. It's, it's brand new. It's, it's just been built. Yeah, for sale, it says. For sale. What on earth is that child up to? Susie! Hey, Susie! Now, come right down. You know you shouldn't run around in other people's houses. That's strange. I'll say. No, no. I mean this house. I've seen this house somewhere. I know I have. Maybe in a magazine or... Mother, it's our house. It's the one I asked him for, Mr. Kringle. Mr. Kringle? I know it is. Oh, you were right, Mommy. You were right. Susie. Mommy told me that if things didn't turn out just the way you wanted them at first... You've still got to believe, and I kept believing. And you were right, Mommy. Mr. Kringle is Santa Claus. Now where are you going? In back to see if there's a swing. There is one, oh, there is one. You told her that? About believing? Well, you told me, Fred. <laughs> a sign outside. For sale, huh? Well, we can't let her down, can we? I never really doubted you. It was just my silly common sense. <laughs> it even makes sense to believe in me now. I must be a pretty good lawyer. I take a little old man and legally prove to the world that he's Santa Claus. Now, you know that couldn't be... Fred! What's the matter? There. In the corner. By the fireplace. Oh, no. No. It, it can't be. It, it couldn't. A cane. Chris's cane. There couldn't be two canes like this anywhere in the world. Silver handle and all. Hey, you know something? Maybe I didn't do such a wonderful thing after all. And that was a double dose of the magnificent Maureen O'Hara, the latest Golden Age star to ascend to the heavens. The world's supply of Golden Age survivors is running very low now. We still have Norman Lloyd and Patricia Morrison and Kirk Douglas and Betsy Drake and Doris Day and Angela Lansbury and Rhonda Fleming and, of course, Olivia de Havilland, amongst others. And their legacies should be cherished at every opportunity while they're still here to enjoy the praise. So please don't be reticent in taking to your blogs and your podcasts and even to your 140 character limits on Twitter any way you can in order to further the cause of this disappearing generation. This was such a pivotal and exciting and defining period in cultural history and the passing of one of its most celebrated members means that one more link to this glorious time has been lost. It's up to fans like us to make sure that they will always be celebrated. Anyway, let me climb down from this precariously high horse for a moment to tell you that next week I'll share my Halloween selection with you. A little late, yes, but view it as a Halloween hangover. So I shall see you there for episode 45 entitled Here Be Monsters. Thank you all for joining me, and slang of all. Bye for now.
wintry sea And when I come back To my own dear land I'll rest a while Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.